Good morning. Would you take God's word and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5? For those that are visiting, we have been engaged in a series going through the book of 1 Peter. And we are actually closing that series out this morning. Now, in case you didn't notice, we sang some rather ancient words this morning. Of course, the Lord's Prayer comes from Scripture itself, which is quite old. We just sang the Apostles' Creed. First mention of that was right around 390 A.D. Very ancient words, but... It wasn't until about the 13th century that it became widely accepted. And I got a question for you this morning. The choir sang a song called Be Thou My Vision. And at the end, you well, actually, it wasn't quite the end. You thought it was the end. You applauded. Just thought I'd point that out. I'm glad they kept going. Why did you applaud? Now, I hope, as your pastor, it was because you were affirming and you were applauding to God the words that they sang. Let me read those words again. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Talks about be thou my wisdom and thou my true word. I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great father and I thy great son. Thou in me dwelling and I am with thee one. Very powerful words. When Peter wraps up what he's talking to the Christians, he says some rather powerful things at conclusion that we need to deal with this morning. And part of it is we're going to have this incredible description of who God is. But being healthy followers of Jesus, we understand that we take on the image of Daddy, God the Father. You know, last week we talked about whose daddy are you? Who do you look more like? Is it the accuser of the brethren? Is it the liar? Is it the one who destroys? Or is it... And we're going to get into what that is this morning. Peter paints to us an incredible picture of who God is. And the challenge for us then is that we become like him. As Paul says in Ephesians, be imitators of God. As... Beloved, dear children. So let's read the text this morning. It's 1 Peter 5, verses 10 through 14. Follow with me on the screen or in your Bibles. Peter writes, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Think about those four words. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And we sang that this morning. By Silvanus, faithful brother, as regard him, 
I've written briefly to you. And at the very end of this, he's just kind of saying, hello, and would I say goodbye? Because he doesn't know if he's going to see these people again. He knows about the persecution coming. He's forewarning this church. And he himself, I think, realizes because of the words of Christ himself that his days were numbered. He just didn't know what number that was. So whether he is martyred or whether they're martyred, he is saying goodbye possibly for the last time. Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. And again, the the implication there is the fact that, you know, she is facing death. Sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. And we read this, and I don't know if you were a part of a church that used to practice what they called the holy kiss. I was 16 years old when I changed churches and went to a church, and they had foot washing. And in this church, they practiced the holy kiss, and nobody told me. So here's a 16-year-old boy who had never kissed his girl yet, ever. Didn't have a girlfriend at that point. And I'm sitting next to this man, and after he washes my feet, he gets me, and he tries to kiss me on the lips. And I kept going away, and he kept coming after. Somebody had to explain to me afterwards. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Do you know what's sad today? When we look at that and we say, well, how, how, I don't know if I like that. I know when I went to Zimbabwe the first time, the missionary who was there for 30 years forgot to tell us one of the cultural traditions and I wasn't aware of it. But I'm walking along with one of the pastors and this is after like two days um, at the conference and all of a sudden he starts holding my hand. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm missing something. And I look back at Joe, and Joe waits, you know, go ahead. He goes, I'll explain later. And over there, it's a sign of friendship. You know what I find tragic? In America today, because we have so sexualized our country, uh, there is very little touching, and kissing is always sensualized rather than a form of greeting like in the Middle East. But that's on us because we have just so saturized our culture towards daddy the devil and not what Christ and God is calling for. And so we have a hard time greeting each other. We kind of just wave. And I think we miss a lot. So let's talk about possibilities for life. I mean, this is what Peter is really talking about. Life just not present, but life to come. And life in this short window that we have. You know, he uses this phrase, a little while. I got a good friend who, well, if you talk to him, will tell you that he wasted his life for the first 55 years. Now, he went to church. He served in leadership positions in those churches. But he'll tell you that it was all about him. And at age 55, he discovered what it was like to have a relationship with Christ. But imagine that in Lancaster County, going to church for 55 years and never having a personal relationship with Christ. 
So just because we attend church and it's part of our tradition and we might be going to a good church, he doesn't blame the churches. He blames his own narcissism, his own selfishness. Last week, and by the way, his life is a story of ongoing transformation. Last week I heard a story of of redemption where someone I knew quite some time ago was enslaved to addictions. He could never quite shake free his demons. Good news is that he did. And he understands what Christ can do. And he's facing his own imminent death now in hospice. As I relate those stories and as I look at what Peter wrote, perspectives are fascinating. You know, my friend said he wasted years. We're these linear beings that we can find ourselves to time as we know it. And we cannot even begin to understand eternity and all the productive years that we have waiting for us. There's so much of life that is ahead that this life is just so minuscule. But we talk about what we wasted rather than what we can engage in. We often view life with a negative on the past. And by that, it really handles ourselves two ways. We think about what we do not have or what we think we should have had or should have done. And we lose ourselves in all the possibilities that didn't exist in the past that we wish we should have, could have, all those kinds of things. Now, the other extreme of that is we think about the good old days. And we live in this day saying, I wish I could be. And we talk about 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. And of course, in doing that, we are notorious for rewriting our past. Have you noticed that? Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. In other words, you know what? (laughs) I'm not there yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. So he says, healthy, mature followers of Jesus don't get caught up in the past about what could have, should have, or where we should be. But they think about the possibilities of the present and future. Just not here, but in the world or eternity to come. He says that is mature thinking. And so Peter starts out in 1 Peter 5 verse 10 saying, and after you've suffered a little while, We view time differently. Think about that phrase a little while. We know that being a Christian doesn't keep us from difficult circumstances. Now, it should keep us from our sin, and those difficult circumstances, those sin will impose upon us. But the truth is we live in an evil world. And living in an evil world, there are evil things that happen to us. So being a Christian does not keep us from difficult circumstances. But notice the truths in this passage about the God of all grace. We have access to this grace. Notice the little phrase about will himself. 
And he says that we are called to live with a purpose. And that's part of this forward thinking. It's part of this that there are possibilities that we have not yet encountered in this world if we are still breathing. Now, who's still breathing here this morning? Raise your hand. Okay. So all of you hands not go up. If you're sitting next to them, just see if they're still with us. Second Corinthians chapter four. By the way, we know the end game, right? Second Corinthians chapter four, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes these words. So we do not lose heart. Though our elder self is wasting away. That's our physical bodies. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Isn't it kind of interesting that he talks about the outer wasting away and dying and the inner doing what? It's learning to live. It's learning to brighten. For this light momentary affliction, there's that for a little while again, is preparing us for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So while it does not feel like a little, I don't know how you are, but if I'm going through tough things, it never feels like a little. I want to say, when is this going to end? But Peter says, keep before us what is truly important. This suffering in this world, whatever you face, and for these people, they are facing an uncertain death. For Peter, he was facing an uncertain death. Now, history tells us how he died. But then he reminds us of four things that Christ will do. And I remind us that since Christ will do these things, and since we are disciples of Christ, this is what it means to be a healthy follower of Jesus. He talks about restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing. Now, I know different translations have different words, and there's a reason for that. Just in case you didn't know, the Bible was not written in English. (laughs) So what we try to do is understand these words, and they can mean more than one thing. Let's look at the word restore. Is Frank Kerber here this morning? There's Frank. You're going to like this word. (laughs) Frank started a 5013C with this word. It's katartizo, to restore. It's a fisherman's term. Literally, it means mending of nets. Mending of nets. In Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22, they're talking about going by the sea. Jesus calls Simon, which is Peter, the guy who wrote this book, and Andrew, his brother. And then later on, he talks about James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother, they're in the boat with their father. And here's what it says. They're mending their nets, and he called them. The word mending there is the word restore. But get that imagery there about mending, because it's, it's just not used of a positive thing. It's also used in a negative way in Scripture. I mean, Paul is discussing this whole How could God allow this kind of stuff happen to us in Romans? In Romans 9.22, here's what he says. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, 
So he's talking about evil in the world and why he doesn't do anything about evil, okay? Has endured with much patience. So this is why he is still waiting for people to come knowledge of his son. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but it's their choice. Then he talks about vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That word prepared is the word here for mending, for restoring. But it's used in this negative sense that he says, you know, there are people out there that mend things together and they're not in the restoration business, but they're in the destruction. They take things apart. They destroy things. So the imagery is this idea that Collectively, we get together and all our words and our actions and everything we do either mend lives or they destroy them. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there are no divisions among you, but that you be united. The word united is the word katartizo. It's the word for restore in the same mind, having the same judgment. Now, the context, and this is the early church, it was already a mess. I mean, they were fighting over preachers. We like this preacher better than that preacher. And Paul comes along and calls them little babies. Can you imagine a preacher doing that today? (laughs) Standing up saying, you guys are just a bunch of babies. You take the milk, not the meats. They were fighting over communion. They were fighting over how they deal with sinners. Some said, you know, we're just going to love on them. We're never going to say anything. We're just going to pretend it like everything's okay. And the other side says, no, you know, we're just going to condemn them, kick them out, all this kind of stuff. The church, just one century out, was an absolute mess. So Paul says, listen, but that you be united, that you be restored, that you mend together the same mind and the same judgments. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, again, you who are mature, should restore. The word restore is the word katatizo. Him in a spirit of gentleness. Note the spirit of gentleness there. Sometimes our restoration business is more harsh than it should be. And then he says, keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. The idea there is that, you know, sometimes when we're confronting sin and trying to restore sin, we ourselves sin in how we do it. That's the idea. Isaiah was a rather rough prophet. And Israel had a perspective problem. And so God tells Isaiah, and here's what he says. He says, I want you to begin, and I want you to shout out their sins. It's Isaiah 58. In fact, he says, I want you to sound like a trumpet. Get their attention. Now, the problem is this. He says, their version of their faith is, they say they seek me every day. They say they delight to know my ways. They say they act as if they were a nation that did right, and they act as if they do not leave me. 
But we begin to see chinks in their image when you read this chapter. They say, well, God, look at us. Look how we fast. Look at how humble we are. I mean, think about that. (laughs) You're telling God about your humility. There's something wrong with that, isn't there? And you don't do anything for us. I mean, God, look at all this dedication that we do to you. Look at all our religiosity. Look how we go to church. Look how we pray. Look how we fast. And why aren't you doing anything for us? Then there's God's version. He says, you know, you seek you. How do I know that? Because you oppress your employees. You quarrel. You fight. You abuse each other. And then he says, here's the fast I choose. I want you to loose the chains of wickedness. In other words, just stop it. He says, I want you to undo the ropes of those things that enslave you. In other words, stop it. I want you to share your food, share your home, share your clothes. And if you begin to live this way, then light and healing will be a part of your nation and your prayers will be effective. And then he adds this. Stop pointing fingers at everyone else. Isn't it amazing they had the same problem we have today? It's called, I'm going to blame someone else for what I am doing. And he says, stop saying wicked things about each other. Now, that was the precursor to the verses I want to read, verses 11 and 12. If you do these things, he says, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. I mean, look at the imagery. He says, you're going to go through hard things. But if you're following me, I'm going to satisfy your desires and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a water garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. And look at verse 12 then. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall rise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. That's a Hebrew word that parallels what we're talking about in Peter. Now, I don't know what you would like GBC to be called. We call that a reputation. But people in the community, if they say, that church... I don't know about you, but I would love for people out there to say, you know what, GBC, they're a repair of the breach, they're a restore of the streets to dwell in. So God will restore, which means we restore. The second word, confirm, it means to set a direction. In Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up about Jesus, It says he set his face. That's the word confirmed. Same word. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, when you think about the life of Jesus, we know he came here with a mission. He was born so he might die, so he might live. That was his mission. He had a lot of distractions. Imagine if you talk to people that day and they realized he was Messiah. They had their checklist about what he should do. Some wanted him to overthrow Rome and set up an earthly kingdom. Some people wanted him to start a healing ministry and heal everybody of their illness. Some, of course, probably wanted him to start a food business because, I mean, who else can take fish and loaves and multiply it to have more left over 
than when you started. So everybody had their agenda for Jesus. But he couldn't be distracted. He had to set his face. James chapter 5 verse 8. He says, you also be patient, establish, set, confirm your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. God calls us and sets a direction for our life. We are elect, we are called out, whatever term you want to use. He's called us to be restorers, to be repairers. And there'll be a lot of distractions. A lot of things to take us off course. A lot of things to get us rabbit trailed down something that we should not go. And then he talks about strengthen. What's interesting about this word, it's the only place it's used. It's used nowhere else. The idea is to strengthen physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And these ideas build on each other. And when you look at the ministry of restoration and setting our direction, keeping our hearts on Christ, he's saying this. If you choose this path, I will give you what is necessary. I will make you strong enough. Because if you set your path on restoration, it will get messy. In other words, saying this, it's not for the lighthearted. It's not for those that want to be comfortable. It's not for those that say, you know, I just want a church I can go to, be comfortable, and not think about anything the rest of the week. No, God's Spirit stirs things up. And then he uses the word establish. It means to lay a foundation. This word's used back in the Sermon of the Mount at the very end in Matthew 7 when he talks about the house built on sand and the house built on rock. Matthew 7, 24 and 25. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, floods came, winds blew. I think he saw our weather report this past week. (laughs) And beat on that house, and it did not fall because it had been founded. There's the word. Established on the rock. And of course, our foundation, our rock, is Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit. There's that word strength that we used before in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. You're established. Then he says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Then that beautiful benediction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Think about that statement. He says, you don't even know what to ask for. But that's okay. Because God will do far beyond all. All that, because if your heart is grounded in love, if you're in the restoration business, he will strengthen you. He will, if you set yourself 
If you confirm that, he will do far above anything you could ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now, we can ask the question, why is this important? Well, the answer in Peter's day was some were going to face some devastating persecution. It was going to be physical. It was going to be economic. They were going to lose everything. There was going to be social consequences. They'd lose their families. They'd lose their friends. You know, other parts of our world today, in certain parts of the Middle East, there's the intentional and systematic killing of anyone who claims Christ as their Lord and Savior. We cannot even emotionally connect with that because we're not there. We cannot feel it. We cannot live it. To us, it's so far away. So we can ask the question, then, why is it important about here? Now, how many of you know the story of the frog in the kettle? You heard that story? Where if you put a frog in water, you gradually turn the heat up. It'll just lay there. And because of how it's designed, the frog literally will boil to death rather than jump out of the water. How many people have heard that story? There's one problem. It's not true. I will admit that I told it as true before, but I'm beginning to realize that everything on the internet isn't true. So I, I did some research. This comes from back in the 19th century where they were doing experiments trying to find the location of the soul. And what they demonstrated was this, that frogs who had their brains removed, they would gradually be boiled to death. But those frogs with brains intact would attempt to jump out at 25 degrees Celsius. That's where this myth story came from. Now, here's the reality of that story. If the church takes its brain out, <laughs> we will boil to death. Who's our brain? Who's the head? It's Christ. If we remove ourselves from Christ, we'll be like my friend who for 55 years was in the church, was active in the church, did church things, served in leadership positions, but he was dying inside. See, as Christians, our bodies are supposed to die on the outside, and we're supposed to grow and get younger on the inside because eternity, all of us are young in terms of eternity, Amen. But think about brainless Christians. Think about spiritual consumerism and apathy that blame their lack of Christ on everyone else. I mean, think about this. When you taste the real thing, no one or nothing should detract you, distract you from Christ. You need to confirm. You need to set yourself. I mean, people that get distracted, it's like this. I'm going to let the best thing, I'm going to let you keep me from the best thing that has ever happened to me. And it's your fault. Huh. Doesn't work that way, does it? Brainless Christianity, it's, it's what we call missional indifference. We're not about restoration and confirming and strengthening. We're not about establishing. We're about everything else. And then we end up in those conversations we should never enter into. 
How many people remember when I had my friend here, Ricky Bolden? Okay. He tells a story about, okay, he's, he's in the NFL. He decides to go to seminary. He gets his first church in Washington, D.C., a church of about 60 people. It was dying. He walks in the first Sunday, and they decide to use a guitar and do some chorus singing along with the hymns. And after the service, a little old lady, and you can imagine a little old lady doing this. I mean, Ricky's what, 330 pounds? He's a big guy. She looks up at him, puts finger in his face, says, Pastor, she goes, you'll never do that again. You'll never use a guitar and sing those songs again. You need to know I bought the organ for this church, and if you do that, I'm going to take my organ. So I thought, wow, that's not a good first Sunday. And uh, there are some homeless people on his stoop of the church the next morning. They lived in a poor section. And so he hired the homeless guys, rented a truck, loaded the organ on, took it over to the lady's house, put it on her porch, knocked on the door, and greeted her kindly and uh, said, Sister, you'll never hold this church hostage again. Here's your organ. And walked away. Now, he told me, he says, you can do that when you only have 60 people because there's not a whole lot of people you're going to lose. But it illustrates what we get caught up in. I think one of the reasons that we can't associate with what's going on in the Middle East and we look at our own country is that over there, they've lost all their stuff. I remember Zimbabwe. They had nothing. They only had Christ. And the church was growing in ways that defy explanation. I mean, there was just so many conversions that you couldn't keep after. And their need was for mature Christians to come alongside. In our country where we have everything, it's so easy to check the brain at the door and become become consumers of Christ rather than healthy followers of Christ. So what this passage is all about is getting back to the basics. It's really a call to remove ourselves from our addictions. I know some addictions are easier to spot than others. We talk about drugs and alcohol and sex. But what about addictions of image? where we're concerned about what other people see physically? What about the addiction of greed? The addiction of envy? The addiction of offense that I talked about last week? What about the addiction to social media that we actually end up texting and playing with our little computers more than we do seeking to set ourselves in Christ? What about the addiction of religion? where we wear the outward signs of being Christian, but inside we're like the Pharisees. We're whited sepulchers. We're empty tombs. We didn't wash the bowl on the inside. See, addictions are nothing more than extended patterns of sin. And they're easier to spot in others than ourselves. Amen? (laughs) But here's the point. When Christ is taken out of the picture... Why are we so surprised at the results? And that goes for anything. You take it out of the church, the results will be chaos and division. You take it out of our culture, the results will be they will pursue things, they'll blame people, exactly what we see going on today. Now, we could spend hours this morning 
talk about why and how we got here. And there's going to be a myriad of opinions that all of us can give in terms of the insight. But listen to what Peter's saying. I want to close with this. He's saying, no matter where you find yourself in life, remember four things. And use those four things to move from the present to the future. He says, God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. God has promised to do that. So our call is then to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. May God help us.